Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Sharik Siddiqui, co-founder and CEO of Vive, a shopper engagement platform that's raised over 10 million in funding. Sharik, thanks for chatting with me today. Absolutely, excited to be here. Yeah, so to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Absolutely. So I guess I'll start uh, way back when I was born and raised uh, in Pakistan. I decided to uh, come to the US uh, to do my uh, bachelor's. And the funny story behind that is, you know, I come from a humble background, uh, but I happened to be going to a really good school where all the rich kids were going. And so when it was time for graduation, a lot of my friends were just going to the U.S. and going into different universities. And I was kind of just like in this mode of like, what am I going to do with my life? Because I don't think my family can afford U.S. education. Anyway, I decided to just apply to a couple of colleges and universities, hoping that I can get some scholarship and then find my way to the U.S. Luckily, I got a full scholarship to study at a university called Wilter College. And so I moved to the U.S. and uh, started my basically higher education here. I was in um, Luther for a couple of months and before I realized that I'm running out of cash and uh, I needed a job. So I started doing hustling, all sorts of things like, you know, just basically making websites or doing all sorts of stuff in the IT lab. One thing led to another, which I got a job as an intern at Citibank, where I started doing my internship. That led me to, uh, you know, moving moving to New York City, where I finished my college. And right after finishing up college, I kind of applied in different places, just because, you know, as a life of an immigrant, you're kind of thinking about, like, you know, what's next once you finish your higher education, you need a job, so you stay in the U.S. So it's kind of like, you know, you go from student visa to work visa, and so I was desperate to get a job. So a group of my friends, uh, we all applied at Goldman Sachs because back in New York City, Goldman Sachs was like, you know, regarded as the highest, still is to a certain extent until tech companies took over. But uh, we uh, basically started the journey there. A group of four people, we all applied. And, you know, luck had it, which is that all three of my friends got a job at Goldman Sachs, but I was rejected. And I was so heartbroken with that incident that I kind of wasn't sure where things are going to go for me. I kind of like had a moment of realization that I'm not good enough. I need to do something different. And that was a very low point where I was really trying to figure out like, you know, what am I going to do? And I could see my friends flourishing within like a couple of months within their Goldman Sachs job. So I decided to take a different route. I decided, hey, I want to kind of create an app. Uh, this is right around the time when Steve Jobs announced that he's going to be opening up the App Store. I pounced on that opportunity. I decided to make an app. Uh, think of this as like a really early version of Yelp. It'll provide like all sorts of information about New York City. And so I built that app. Somehow Wall Street Journal covered that. And uh, it got Michael Bloomberg, who used to be the mayor of New York City. He got his attention. He asked me to come over. He really liked the app. Uh, he funded the app. And then literally 17, 18 months later, it got acquired by BMW. So that was like really the starting of my career in the U.S. in the corporate world. From there on, I ended up at Amazon, where I spent almost uh, 
a decade uh, building various products and services. And then really towards the end of uh, 2018, 2019, I decided to uh, leave Amazon to do this startup. Take us back to that plane ride uh, when you were leaving Pakistan and flying to the United States for the first time to go to school. What was going through your head on that plane ride? So a lot to, to, uh, to say the least, but um, think about it this way that, uh, you know, my parents were very, very concerned. I was 18 years old. I think I was 17 years old back then. And my dad had this conversation with me that I know I understand that all your friends are going and they can afford uh, college education in the U.S., uh, but you cannot. Uh, so you really need to find a way to do this on your own. And I said, I'll just figure it out. I really would like to go. I guess those was a, that was a time when I was just like infatuated with like Hollywood. And, you know, I remember watching Beverly Hills 90210 back in the days. And, you know, it was you know, a young kid, 16, 15, 16 year old kid who was just infatuated with like Hollywood, the lifestyle, the United States. And so I was just hell bent on figuring something out and getting out and figuring things out on my own. And so my dad, he basically said that you will literally be on your own, but you know, you can always come back. And so what he did is like on my way to the airport, he handed me $700 cash. And he said, this is the only money that I can give you. And from there on, you're going to be on your own. And I took that money and I kind of knew that this $700, uh, which is, you know, when I hear other stories, that's a lot more than other people who have come and uh, built a life here in this country. And basically from that point onwards, I knew that, you know, this is going to be a sink or swim situation for me. So at any point, whenever I felt like I was going to give up, I kind of reminded myself that this was my own decision. I need to make it happen. And so, you know, at all points in life, you know, there's been highs and lows, a lot more lows. I've lived a very tough life, lived, you know, done all sorts of jobs. But I figured it out, you know, like one of my best experiences has been like working as a server in New York City. I started in a very cafe-like serve place, but then I eventually ended up in a really high-end uh, restaurant where it was a club and only Hollywood members would come in. So I had the pleasure of like, you know, working and serving some of the hobnobs of Hollywood. So uh, that trained me a lot in terms of how to communicate with people, how to sell things, right? So one of the things that I was doing there uh, was trying to basically sell food items, but also like, you know, what type of wine would go really well in the restaurant industry. Most restaurants make a lot of money selling wines uh, just because they have such high margins as compared to like actual food. So there was a lot of focus on that in that restaurant. And so they trained me how to sell wines, how to sell like French Bordeaux versus an Italian you know, wine. And so that got me really got exposure to outside of like academics, outside of like technical things to how to deal with people, how to deal with like, you know, uh, really nice people, but at the same time, how to deal with people who can be extremely rude to you. So that kind of character building, I feel like was uh, such an important aspect of me as growing up in the U.S. And I really think like, you know, a lot of people would credit like, you know, you should just go out of school and go and get a really good job, uh, which I agree. But, you know, sometimes you'd never know how the universe is playing things for you. And so for me, like, you know, one of my best jobs was working in that restaurant where they taught me how to sell things. And today I use those skills for something completely different. Wow. What an amazing journey. And I'm sure that's really had a major impact on you as you started building companies and have had to overcome 
those challenges and struggles and the pain of company building. So that's uh, that's amazing. Thank you. Now, I'd love to switch gears here a little bit and let's dive a bit deeper into a few questions that we like to ask just so we can really better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So first question there is what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Sure. Yeah, I think there's a long list of people that I admire. And uh, obviously, there are like some very obvious CEOs and founders out there. I think as as a founder and CEO myself, one of the founders that I have personally admired or have grown to admire a lot more than uh, some others is uh, Satya, Satya Nadella from uh, Microsoft. Now, obviously, he was not a founder, but he is the CEO. And a job of CEO is, you know, incredibly difficult and incredibly lonely. You know, people think of uh, the job of CEO is like you're on top and you're, but it's extremely lonely up on the top and you're kind of like responsible for when everything goes bad. But at the same time, when things go well, you want to make sure that you're giving credit to the entire team effort, the company as well. So I think why I really, really like Satya is because number one, he's, he is a visionary, right? Like if you think about like Microsoft and I happen to be in Seattle during the, you know, the highs of Amazon, highs and highs of Amazon. So we could really see from the other side of the, in Redmond, Washington, where Microsoft was not necessarily doing that well until Satya stepped in and his vision, his cultural transformation. And I think uh, overall, like the move into the companies from the software focus to AI focus, cloud computing, mixed reality, Microsoft has really become a, you know, a leader in these areas. And that's credit goes to uh, Satya's vision. When you think about like, you know, just even like the financial performance of Microsoft, it has done wonders. And so I think like his commitment to be customer focused, visionary, there has been a cultural transformation within Microsoft. Uh, I know a lot of people who work at Microsoft who work for decades at Microsoft and they would talk about like, you know, how things have shifted. So it's hard to find leaders like this, right? So who are very well-rounded, uh, you know, are when you listen to him, you think about like, you know, he's talking about the vision, but he's also talking about like how he's transforming industries, but, you know, keeping an eye on the price, on the financial performance of Microsoft. And other than that, like, you know, commitment, uh, the social responsibility commitment as well. So I really admire him. One thing that uh, sets him apart uh, compared to a lot of other CEOs and founders is humility. I find him, uh, you know, very humble person in general. But when you're the CEO of Microsoft, hubris would kick in in so many different ways. But his focus or his investment in OpenAI is a really good testimony of like how he understood that, you know, Microsoft is really good at a lot of different things, but there are some more up and coming new startups that can potentially do better. And so his ability to foresee that open AI could be a force to reckon with and potentially a force to reckon with Google shows his ability to, you know, see far out in the future and put his money in the right places. So really admire what he's done for the company and uh, in general, like where Microsoft is uh, leading the AI space in overall. What was his quote that he had recently about making Google dance or something along those lines? I read something like that and thought it was just a, such a great line. 
Yeah, I don't know, but I think I understand, uh, you know, how he's approaching this and uh, he's definitely uh, bringing AI or, you know, because the word AI gets tossed around so much in so many different places. But uh, I think like the drastic changes that are coming to the overall suite of cloud services that Microsoft offers, Copilot being one of them. You know, the office products have started to, you know, like uh, we as a company, we are primarily on Google suite of products, but, you know, we're starting to realize like how even things like Microsoft Office, PowerPoint, Word, they're starting to gain some real intelligence. So amazing moves of what he's doing right now. So I think there are a lot of board members within Google who might be a little uncomfortable about like some of the moves that Microsoft is making right now. Yeah. Which is good for us consumers, though, I think, right? I think we win when these companies start to compete. So it'll be good for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also think like, you know, while the big companies are winning, there is definitely a need for the smaller ones, right? So you want new entrants to come in and basically keep the big guys on their toes. So win-win for everyone. Totally agree. Now let's talk about books. Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you as a founder and really just you as a person? Uh, that's a tricky one because I, I obviously have uh, two sides to me. One is obviously like my life, personal life, my uh, family life as a husband, as a father, and, uh, you know, the lessons that I have as a immigrant coming to the U.S. So one of the books that I've really, really enjoyed and kind of like, you know, read it at a very early, early age was this book called Kite Runner. And I think the author is Khaled Husseini, and he's basically just depicting a story about like a young boy who is living in Afghanistan and the trials and tribulations as a child living in that environment where he's got like friendships and betrayals, his relationship with his father, there's like this ethnic tension going on. And then like overall, like, you know, the historical events that are happening within Afghanistan. So it kind of gives you like a full view of like, you know, as a human being, you're going through so many different emotions and how do you capture them? And so the book is just beautifully written and kind of like hits a nerve for me, which is like, you know, the different sides of the trials and tribulation he goes through from being a kid to a grown up. So that book has, uh, you know, a lot of interesting lessons uh, for me and for any individual. Outside of that, I think uh, one of the books that I just recently read it's called The Startup Nation. It's about Israel and, uh, you know, why Israel is so different than pretty much any other country out there. And I thought I was pretty fascinated by reading that book around like the culture. And, you know, the book is more about how Israel became the startup nation, right? I was really fascinated by what makes Israel so impressive when it comes to building new technology, when it comes to being on the forefront in agriculture and defense and medical equipment. So the book really just talks about it in multiple different ways with examples of how they were willing to take a leap of faith in their own people, willing to work with the world to make Israel a ground for testing new things. And so they really played to their disadvantages in a way and turned them into advantages. So one example is like, because they're so small, they said this is a perfect test bed for anybody to do anything. I think like those type of lessons for me is like, you know, whenever you have a disadvantage, how do you turn that disadvantage into an advantage? 
is a remarkable ability for anybody to possess or to learn, right? So I think I've done this myself in my own personal, very small capacity, but it's like whenever you're down, whenever you're disappointed, whenever you're heartbroken, how do you harness that energy into something positive, into something that can have an impact? personal impact, society impact, any kind of impact. So I think that book talks about this concept called chutzpah. And to summarize this, it's basically questioning the status quo and not letting people just do things just because this is how it's done. Then you can apply that at a nation level. You can apply that at a company level, and you can apply that at an individual level as well. So I think like those are the things, those are the values that I would love to install within my own company where, you know, somebody who comes right out of college should question everything that we're doing, right? So there shouldn't be like, you know, just because somebody told me my VP of engineering told me to do this, so I'm doing it. So I really love the idea of like, you know, question everything, you know, challenge everything just because there are people who are at a higher level, more experience doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. So I think like that book, is a must read for people who are trying to come up with ways on how to use like what the outside world might see as a disadvantage and but how do you view that as a glass half full and turn it to for to your own advantage yeah startup nation is such a great book i read that in 2016 when i was just starting my pr firm and no joke i read it and i flew to Israel about two weeks later. And I built a list of every company in Israel or every startup in Israel and emailed them subject line, come to Israel, want to meet. And I ended up meeting with like 20 something founders. You know, they were very open to some like random guy from California just flying out and closed some deals and had a great time. And it's just such a fascinating culture and and a fascinating country. And what they are doing in terms of tech is just wild. And all the big companies that are coming out of there, it's really, really impressive. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so impressed by what they're doing. And uh, they're kind of like, you know, leader in so many different spaces at this point. And, uh, you know, we're coming from the Silicon Valley and seeing how things are going in the U.S. I think they're U.S. in so many different ways that is lagging behind you. Uh, you make a trip. I've never been to Israel, but I'm sure they're very high tech. Uh, you fly out to China, you go to Shanghai, you go to Beijing and you see things are rapidly evolving. They're very high tech, same for South Korea. So I think like U.S. is lagging behind in certain things. Uh, but uh, but I think uh, the beauty of the U.S. is like it can attract the best talent and gives you a platform to do whatever you want. And you know, that's why I admire this country for so many reasons. Yep, absolutely. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now let's switch gears here and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So can you just provide a high level overview of what the company does, the problem you solve, who you solve it for, and, and really what that product does? Sure. Yeah. And Brad, I would love to kind of give you a little bit of background here as well. So, uh, you know, how the journey actually started. So uh, towards like the last couple of years at Amazon, there was a lot of focus around this new product called Amazon Go. I wasn't part of the team, but I was part of like the beta testing. So they were dog fooding 
this product uh, with internal employees, I was fascinated by this concept that Amazon was building, which is Amazon Go. Effectively, for people who do not know what Amazon Go is, it's essentially a physical store. Think of it like a 7-Eleven or a convenience store where you enter by scanning your mobile phone, a QR code on your Amazon app. So as soon as you walk in, we know who you are or Amazon knows who you are. And so at that point, using cameras are mounted on the ceiling, you can be tracked and they can watch what you're adding to your basket or adding to your grabbing items from the aisles. And then instead of going out to a cash register and paying, you just simply walk out. They actually are trademarked the term just walk out. I was fascinated now when this concept was internally being tested. But as a product guy who's built several different products at Amazon, one thing that consistently bothered me with Amazon Go was scale, right? So when Amazon does things, they're basically looking at from a couple of different angles, right? Number one is like, is there an opportunity to build a new product? If that's the case, then can we turn that product into a business? And if you can turn that product into a business, can you turn it into an enterprise solution, right? So when you're thinking about it from that lens, I couldn't wrap my head around how Amazon Gold can be scaled into a full-on enterprise solution. So primarily because of the return on investment, right? It's a very, very expensive proposition. So I thought of a different approach and I thought, wouldn't it be better if you just basically put these cameras on a shopping cart? Why a shopping cart? Because when you walk into any grocery stores or any large format stores, shopping cart is like the first thing you grab. So if you can just turn that into an IoT device, you could potentially achieve a similar end outcome, which is just walk out, but without having to, you know, having that capital expenditure to uh, retrofit stores. So that's where the journey started. So, and, you know, as a previous entrepreneur working at Amazon, I constantly was just like, you know, interested in new ideas, uh, you know, exploring ways where I can figure out a new product and then potentially even like leave Amazon and do all my own thing. But I would always struggle with like, when is the right time to leave? And, you know, working at Amazon for that long, it's really, really hard. You have a really cushy job. You're making enough money for you to just be content with everything. But it wasn't for me about the money. It was for me, it was like, you know, these are my golden years and I want to do something different. So that led me to, uh, you know, leaving Amazon. That's right around the time when I also got married. And so uh, I left Amazon to build Beeve. And really the genesis was like, you know, can we basically build a smart cart? That's how the journey started in 2019. This was my first time building a hardware product. So I was really new to that. A lot of people told me that, you know, like I shouldn't get into hardware and I can name 15,000 reasons why that's the right thing to say, but I can also name, you know, 15,000 reasons why this could be strategically extremely valuable for you as a company as well. But just right before leaving Amazon, there were sleepless nights where I was like, you know, if I don't do it, somebody else will. And so that got me the courage to leave Amazon, start this company. And in a year's time, uh, we launched our first product, very half-baked, you know, put it in a store, got customer feedback. And the journey started from there. And, uh, you know, we ended up launching in some of the biggest stores, raising money and expanding the company. And now we're looking for international expansion. Happy to dive deeper into the journey more. So can you just talk me through what it's like as a consumer? So let's say I walk into the store, I have the cart, what's happening? 
Yeah, so you walk in and you see these screens snapped onto uh, shopping carts and it just basically says you can find deals and promotions on it. And as soon as you say, let's get started, you enter your phone number. If you, we know who you are through your loyalty with that retailer, then we can pull up all the coupons that you've clipped on your mobile app or we can pull up your shopping list there. After that, as you place items in the cart, it'll automatically recognize those items and uh, create a running total. There is a 10-inch touchscreen that'll kind of show you the journey that you're taking, which aisle you're in, and it'll constantly just basically make recommendations and, and show you the best deals and promoted products on the screen. So the cart has the capability using computer vision to recognize the products that are going inside the cart, but more interestingly, it can also scan the aisles. So by scanning the aisle, it knows that you're in the pets aisle, you're in the beauty aisle, you're in the chips aisle. Based on that, we can show deals near you. And that's what allows customers to find the best deals, clip coupons, and uh, make the average basket size bigger. When you're done shopping, you just hit the checkout button. Uh, there is a payment reader built into the device. Uh, you just uh, tap to pay or insert your card. As soon as you do that, there is an LED light on the device that turns blue, which means the customer has paid and everything's good. And you just simply walk out of the door. That's the technology we built. And that was the core product offering. And since then, we've basically evolved into a couple of different products outside of the core uh, just walkout tech. And is fraud an issue at all? I don't know if that's even the right word for this, but maybe theft, like, are there concerns that people would maybe put like, something expensive under the cart, would it be detected then because it wouldn't go through the sensors? Like, is that a general concern that you guys have at all? Yeah. So one thing that I've learned in almost five years of uh, doing startups, but in general, is like there are opinions and then there is data, right? And so this is a really, really tough conversation to have with retailers as well. So the term that's used in the retail world is shrink, uh, which is loss from the theft. And so the way I kind of approach this problem is that you have to make some assumptions. And those assumptions are something like this. 95% people who are walking into a grocery store are not trying to steal. Maybe a 5% or a percentage of that 5% are trying to actively steal. And there are small percentage of people who just didn't know how to do certain things. So what you want as a product guy, and I'm a product guy at heart, and so as a product person, you want to separate those two things out, which is like, let's not build a rigid system that punishes the other 95%. So you want to build it the opposite way where if you know, you know, kind of applying the 80-20 rule here, then if 80% of your customers are not trying to steal, then don't build a very rigid system. So that's exactly what we did, which is that you know, when our computer vision algorithms detect any kind of anomaly, then what we do is we send that video clip to a store employee. Store employees are given an employee tablet and they can watch what the customer did inside the cart. So what we can do is we basically send a clip to the employee to see what's, what's happening. At that point, the employee can mark an item as audit or they can just clear that audit. That's how we do loss prevention. But there are so many different ways that people, that we can do loss prevention. One, the best way to do loss prevention is asking the customers to identify themselves. Once they identify themselves, the chances of them trying to steal 
becomes, you know, drastically lower. And so that's what most retailers are doing, which is like asking customers to log into the cart. And once you're logged in, then you kind of have a history of like how they've done. So kind of what works in multiple different ways, but honestly, people don't steal as much. And think about it this way, would you rather steal from a regular session, from a regular shopping cart, or would you steal from a cart that has cameras on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, it makes sense. I'm sure that deters someone there's thinking about stealing, probably don't go to that place that has these cards. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So people who are trying to steal, they want to remain anonymous, right? So it's like, you know, it's, if you think about like cars, most auto theft or like thieves who are trying to steal cars, they avoid Tesla because of the number of cameras on it. So they're trying to like not go after a car that has, that is significantly more intelligent than regular cars. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And this is added on to an existing shopping cart. Is that correct? So it's not an entirely new cart? Yeah. So that actually brings like kind of like the journey that we've gone through. So initially, we actually built a cart from the ground up. Uh, why we did that? Because what we learned is that almost 40% of transactions that happen in a grocery store, there's at least one item that is done by weight, right? So you're pricing that item by weight. So think of your deli items, think of your produce like uh, bananas, apples, oranges. So what we wanted to do was provide retailers a complete solution where the built-in scales are allowing customers to just complete their entire transaction within that cart. A couple of things happened both at a micro level as well as macro level. At a macro level, COVID happened. And what COVID did is they jacked up the prices of raw material, which means that with all these steel carts that we were building, the cost of those carts almost went up 3x. And, you know, as a startup, you have to pass on that cost back to the retailers, but the retailers weren't willing to pay so much for these carts. So we evolved in two different ways. One is we figured out how to basically take an existing shopping cart and embed a weighing scale in that. So that allowed us to reduce our costs by almost 90%. So today the carts that we're building is like almost 10% of the cost of the carts that we were building back in 2020. And at the same time, we created a new module and think of this as very simple product, which is, you know, an Android tablet like screen. It has a massive processor, so it can, uh, and multiple cameras on it. So it can be snapped onto any shopping cart. So when you think about like use cases like Sam's Club, Costco, Home Depot, Voss, Target, uh, stores that don't necessarily sell products by weight, for those, we basically started showcasing the new product and started gaining a lot of traction, primarily because these are much, much cheaper to produce. And so we can pass on those savings back to the retailers as well. So that has been the evolution of Gene. And at the same time, we've also evolved into other products, other services that we can offer. So, you know, we're no more a smart card company, but we're kind of providing retail intelligence, giving retailers the ability to think of their stores like an e-commerce website where you have click stream data of like who came to this website, how much time they spent on the home screen, what did they click on, what items did they add to cart, what items did they remove from cart, and how much was their total checkout. All of that information is today available to Clickstream. Google Analytics is another way people think about this. But where's the Google Analytics for brick and mortar stores? 
And so that's kind of like the evolution of Veeam, which is like we started leveraging computer vision to understand consumer behavior, uh, started to understand like your aisle traffic, the pattern at 8 a.m. versus at 9 a.m. And by having cameras on this device, we can also scan the aisles so we can offer like out of stock inventory management as solutions. So we started just keep on building new products and services. And since we already had an in to most of these retailers, they were just delighted to just enable new services on top of the device that we provide them. And looking through the website and I and I saw a press release with Albertsons and I'm from Southern California, so I, I love Albertsons, but how did you go about landing these logos and, and closing these deals with these massive, massive grocers? I, I'm sure that that's not an easy sales cycle. It's selling hardware, it's selling you know, emerging technology. So what was that sales process like? And what do you think you got right to get these big organizations to give you a shot? Oh man, uh, you're touching a really touchy topic here, but uh, it's a combination of a few things. Uh, one is you want to have a really, really good product or a product that people look at and they're like, wow, that is actually uh, solving, not just like kind of like the way I think about products is like, I don't want to build a one trick pony because one trick pony products are, is that, you know, somebody can come in and immediately offer a cheaper solution to a retailer and, or to any industry. And then you're kind of like, you know, left in a really bad place. Uh, so I kind of start think about products as like, you know, how do we create an ecosystem? How do we create the stickiness factor? I'll get more to like, but how do you sell it? Because you don't want to sell the vision to retailers because they don't really care about your company's vision. They care about their company's vision. They care about their financials. They care about their customers, right? So you want to position your product in a way that actually addresses their needs rather than all your own vision around it. So number one, I think uh, you want to build a really, really good product. Uh, number two, you need to have a good network. So, uh, you know, your network can come from the people you know in the retail space. Uh, LinkedIn becomes a really, really good friend in that case. And then, uh, you know, when you're raising money, one of the first things that I would ask uh, the VCs, because usually it's the other way, which is like VCs just asking you questions, but I would encourage a lot of like these founders, which is like ask these VCs, other than money, what are they bringing to the table, right? And so I think for us, it was really, really important that, you know, we can build technical expertise in-house. We can bring the best computer vision scientists. We can hire those people. But what we really need is access to retailers. And so that became a pretty important. So I purposely went after VCs who have previously invested in other retail startups and who've gained some traction and what their relationships are or you know, or with retailers who have their VC arm going to them directly because that makes it an easy path to the Albertsons, the Kroger's, the Walmarts of the world. Uh, so that was one way. But when you, the bigger the retailer is, the longer the sales cycle is, the more people, the more stakeholders there. So identifying who is the buyer for your product becomes so critical, right? And I still think, you know, our strategy has evolved and then will continue to evolve because sometimes the buyer is the store operations. Sometimes the buyer is the chief digital officer. Sometimes the buyer is the chief data officer who's looking for data. So you really need to understand 
when you're going into a company and doing the due diligence to understand who is the right buyer. And whoever you think is the right buyer may not be the right buyer. So you're going to be knocking multiple doors within the same corporations to kind of figure out like who's the right fit, where do I pitch? And so I would literally have like multiple different versions of our pitch deck for the same company but depending on who I was talking to, right? Because I don't need to tell them what I've built. I need to tell them how I will solve their problem, not their counterparts. That is the key, right? To understand that. And so for that, you need to have a really good pulse in the domain that you are operating in and also being able to like do research on them, like the articles that they posted, the, the medium or the LinkedIn. So you can understand what are these people passionate about? So I'll give you an example. I'm not going to quote any names, but like there was a leader from a very large corporation who was basically coming in, you know, C-level executive after spending, you know, years building their pharmacy in their pharmacy uh, department. And so I kind of, you know, changed a few things about a product and said that, hey, we can make it so simple that when you enter and you check in on the cart, if you have a pharmacy order, we can send that information to the store pharmacy that this person is now in the store. And now you can digitally communicate with them. So whenever your medicines are ready for pickup, just send a notification on the cart and they'll come and pick it up. So he was really excited about that, right? And that's how we got in. So it's really trying to understand how do you identify who your buyer is within an organization. And the bigger the organization is, the more complex this process can be. And it's painfully long. I want to talk about for the benefit of this audience, uh, which is like, how do you take an extremely complex product and then simplify it so that your messaging becomes so much easier for somebody where your sales cycles become shorter? One of the challenges that we experienced ourselves is what we're effectively selling is a point of sale terminal on wheels. And so when you think about like, you know, the amount of different aspects of a point of sale terminal, to just give you a very simple example, a point of sale terminal can accept your phone number or your email address so they know how to grab those reward points or clip those coupons for you. So you need to have a loyalty integration in your system. So, you know, if you're working with Kroger or Albertsons or Costco or Walmart, you need to have access to those APIs or to their system. So you need to integrate with loyalty. And same as you need to integrate with the catalog. What are the items that are in the store? You need to integrate with pricing engine. So pricing is usually dynamic. So we're going to give you access to APIs that you need to integrate with. You need to integrate with their payment solution. You need to integrate with their inventory. So POS is a very complex set of different services that are running under the hood. And so in order for us to gain traction with any type of a retailer, so if you think about retailers in a spectrum of the top tier retailers to mid tier to the end tail, all of these retailers have different needs, different desires, different systems. And so in order to integrate with all of them, it is extremely difficult, especially if you have a team of 30 engineers who are already in the middle of like deployments and keeping cards live, it becomes a very, very daunting task. From a business side, the sales cycles are extremely long. So one thing that we were able to successfully do was late in 2021, we identified that we need to do something about our sales cycle, right? How do we make our sales cycle go from like six to nine months long to, you know, six weeks or even shorter than that? 
So we change. And so the term in the industry is the wedge. How do you create a wedge product? And basically the core definition of a wedge product is that it is not your actual product. It is a subset of your product, which is so simple, which is so easy to understand. And you see the benefit, the ROI immediately. When you're the buyer on the other side, so if you're a retailer and you're looking for technology, there are not just the process of evaluating a technology, there's a process of like the internal bureaucracy, the politics that's going on between the marketing team and the product team and the technology team. And so when you try to balance all those things out, you know, we would hear answers like, well, it's really interesting product. Let me think about it. Let me talk to my tech team. Let me discuss this with my store operations. And then there was just a radio silence. And we were just trying to, we're scratching our heads, which is like, we built such an amazing product, but what is preventing these people from taking advantage of this technology? Because this is something like, you know, Amazon or Instacart is offering. So we're giving them something, you know, a level playing field when it comes to Amazon or Instacart. And then we understood that the challenges isn't that this product is not a good fit. The challenges is like, how do you get all the stakeholders involved in this for this to happen? So this usually happens at top down, which is the CEO or the CTO or the CDO making a decision. And then it's, you know, uh, top down. But we wanted to just eliminate all of this and create a wedge product. So what we ended up doing is we decided that Let's figure out a solution where we do not have to integrate with the retailer's POS systems. And that, that kind of opened up a lot of different opportunities. By eliminating the need to do POS integration, the sales cycles just got shorter, right? But the first question they would ask is like, well, how would you do it if you don't know? And we would give them, you know, we would show them like how we do it. And then they, you know, wheels would start turning in their head, which is like, oh, wow. Okay. If these guys can do this, then I don't even need to talk to my tech team because the tech team is not involved in this discussion. And if these guys are saying that these carts or these devices are fully autonomous, which means that store operations, other than having these units deployed on every cart, the store operations isn't really doing anything, but they're getting so much in return. That makes their conversation with their counterparts a lot easier. So what became really valuable to us was to simplify our pitch, simplify the product, and create that wedge product, which requires almost no integration with the retailers, right? And giving them an offer, which is like, you know, a 30-day risk-free trial. You can sign up for this contract after you've seen the first 30 days of result and the data we're going to show you. So that made it a lot more palatable for retailers to say that, well, there is no harm. So we tried to move from a hardware-centric product to hardware as an enabler to a SaaS offering. That changed things for us in a drastic way, and we're certainly hoping that it'll continue to do so even in a more positive way. That's amazing. And I know we only have about two minutes left here, and I want to give you a chance to answer the final question. So to wrap things up, let's zoom out into the future. So three to five years from today, what's that high-level vision? What are you trying to build? I think, uh, you know, for Beanie, uh, we consider the computer vision as the nucleus of, of our company. 
And so we want to basically do what I mentioned earlier, which is like providing intelligence to retail partners, right? And that intelligence can come from strength detection. That intelligence can come from how your customers move around the store. What are the most profitable aisles? What are so the device that we built is effectively you can think of this as like uh, the Google Street Car with cameras, so it's scanning everything. And so the vision that I have is like when you have the ability to have eyes, these cameras that are basically recording in cart sessions, in aisle sessions, what's on the shelf, you can digitize all of these things. And so tomorrow, how this gets played out in an AR and a VR environment, there's a huge opportunity that we would have access to that we can build on top of it. But primarily staying, keeping the focus on like, what's the value add for the retailer, right? How are we improving their margins? How are we improving their customer experience, the shopper experiences? And what is our product doing to bring back store traffic to these retailers? So uh, vision being that, how do you build a platform that retailers think of it as the retail operating system where they can plug and play into these microservices so that they can deploy other hardware they can deploy cameras and then they can kind of monitor how their stores are performing by just basically having access to a dashboard across multiple different uh, retailers. Wow. Amazing. I love it. We are up on time or over time here. So we're going to have to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? I would uh, highly encourage, like I'm uh, very active on LinkedIn. Uh, so my LinkedIn, I, and I can uh, leave my LinkedIn profile with you as well. Uh, that's primarily where I do most of my uh, professional. Other than that, on our website, beebe.io, that's where we provide all sorts of updates, any new deployments. We're going to be making some announcements as we go international expansion. So uh, that would be a great place for people to see the journey for beef. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share lessons about what you're building and to really talk about your approach to bringing this amazing technology to market. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know our audience is going to as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 